It's funny, but you know, time does go fast. It's been 21 years since I left teaching and went into professional ministry. I remember sitting at my desk at St. Paul's Church as a youth minister in, in Bennettsville, South Carolina, looking at a cartoon on baptism. And then the first, there's three panels in this cartoon, and the, the, the guy is about to go into a baptistry. Now, if you don't know what a baptistry is, behind that panel is a baptistry. Baptist churches have a baptistry. It's a big, lack of better word, hot tub, all right? There's not a hot tub, but it's just a big dunking tank where they immerse people for baptism. Those of you who are from the Baptist tradition go, well, yeah. Well, what I've discovered is not everybody knows that. Well, this guy's standing about to go into the baptism waters, and he looks at the pastor and says, now, let me get this right, all right? As I go into the waters, everything in my life is being buried in Christ by his death. Everything. And, he, and the pastor in the second panel goes, that's right. Your life is old creation buried, new creation comes out. Third panel, you see a picture of the pastor dunking the guy into the waters. The guy's totally under, except for him holding his wallet out of the water. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Some things are funny because they're true, right? Um, many people look at baptism that way. They, you know, when I'm baptized, whether I'm con am confirmed, I'm giving myself to Christ, yet we compartmentalize a part of our life, whatever it might be. My music, my sexuality, my relationships, my money, my career, whatever it might be, we hold it out of the water. And we say, Lord, you can have all of me except. Right? In other words, we live lives with one foot in the water of our baptism and another foot in the world. And when we, such lives are lived in our culture, it makes our baptism irrelevant. Um, in a lot of people's minds, they look at such professing Christian lives that they're living that way as not having much relevance to their life. And so we arrive to this feast day in the church universal. It's exciting, and I encourage you to celebrate this day. You know, don't let the world decide for you what's important. And uh, let's celebrate. But as we do so, as we walk into the season of Epiphany, we're going to stop and look at baptism, and specifically our Lord's baptism. What it is, why Jesus' baptism, and what the implications for us are. So I encourage you to open up with me to your Bibles. If you're visiting with us, you can find it in the back of the bulletin. It's a short text. What is baptism then and now? What's the meaning of Jesus' baptism, and what are the implications for us? Well, let's look at our baptism. Now, I, those of you who are with us through Advent know that verses 1 through 12 of Matthew's Gospel was one of our texts in Advent. It was the second Sunday of Advent, and I did an exposition on that text. It's a wonderful text, and you need to understand this in light of that. Because John is practicing a baptism of repentance, which involves, for unbelievers, 
such as the Pharisees, right? He's so nice to them, isn't he? You know, verse 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not your legalistic, pharisaical obedience that you think is meritorious. That's what he's saying. And so he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, verse 11, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a picture of judgment that John is giving. So baptism, in one sense, is a judgment on our sin. And it's a picture of judgment for unbelievers. But we have seen in our studies in Genesis 9, in Genesis 17, that baptism and, and all types of things in God's kingdom are a covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement with blessings for walking in the agreement of that covenant and consequences, or in spiritual language, curses with spiritual consequences for disobeying it. And we see in the Old Testament there's a set of elements that are connected to these covenants. And at the heart of these covenants is the gracious promise of God offered to the participant or recipient of the covenant and his or her offspring. Now as we think of how this applies to the new covenant sign of baptism, it's important to remember that unbelieving representative or believing and unbelieving are recipients of this covenant. Meaning the children who don't quite understand it yet are recipients of the covenant. So, how does this apply to New Testament believers such as us? And is the pattern the same as the Old Testament or has it changed? Well, obviously the sign of the covenant has changed. Baptism has replaced circumcision, Genesis 17 as the sign that indicates the introduction with the covenant. Uh, in fact, that when some early Jewish Christians wanted to require believing Gentiles to be circumcised, the apostles firmly determined that the old covenant sign was not a condition of salvation and was not enforced upon the Gentiles. Good news for them. The apostles understood that when Jesus made baptism, uh, he was replacing circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And it became one of the two great sacraments of the church. And so baptism was more appropriate symbol of the new covenant because circumcision, uh, because of Jesus' death upon the cross, the, the bloodshedding, the sacrifice was not necessary. Jesus died once for all. And as we see here, baptism was not new to the Jewish nation, was it? John is, is participating in a ceremonial baptism of repentance. It was done frequently with Gentile converts into Judaism. They would have to be baptized as to be symbolic of their cleansing from their pagan belief and practice. And so the question for us, has anything changed? Well, some Christians 
would say, yeah, there have been some changes. And that the appropriate recipients of the covenant sign have changed. These Christians claim that only believers should receive baptism because it's intended to be a sign of repentance and faith in Christ. That's what we call believer's baptism. When a person professes faith in Christ, then they're baptized. And they cite Acts 2.38, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized. However, those other Christians, such as us, covenant belief, say that the unbelieving children of believing parents also ought to be baptized. So how do we resolve this difficulty between the two views? Well, first of all, let's frame the question correctly. Most Protestant Christians agree that baptism of itself is not an instrument of salvation for adults or children. In other words, the water itself, even though it's been prayed over by the minister, is not salvific. Right? In other words, baptism by itself does not save. Right? Also, most Protestant Christians agree that those who give evidence to a credible testimony of saving faith in Christ ought to be baptized. All right? So it's kind of both going on right here. So the question is whether the unbelieving children of believing parents are also legitimate recipients of the sign of baptism. And if so, what the baptism of unbelieving infant would, would that signify for them? Well, the answer should be as simple as finding some New Testament chapter and verse that settles the matter, but guess what? You're not going to find it, okay? Unfortunately, we're not going to find it. There is no New Testament passage that specifically teaches that only believers are to be baptized or that the children of believers ought to be baptized. It's as if the early church, it wasn't an issue for Lacking clear teaching, we should then look for precedent, setting examples in the New Testament. And there are some. Okay? We see examples in Acts chapter 8 where a person's baptized alone. We see examples of baptism in large mixed crowds of unknown age makeup. And we also see family groups, as in Acts chapter 16, where the Philippian jailer and his whole family was baptized. Now, I, I think it's worth asking. Are you telling me that whatever his children, and if his whole family's baptized, that entailed children that were not professing age yet? And they didn't quite necessarily understand every, all the implications of the covenant, necessarily. So, even if we knew the New Testament baptisms were only adult believers, this in of itself would not prove that children believers should not children of believers should not receive the sign. So what do we do? So let's look at the pattern of the Old Testament. Because the question then becomes, does the New Testament give any indication that the Old Testament pattern has changed? Indeed not. If anything, we see the pattern confirmed the apostles practicing of baptism whole households without any concern of clarifying whether each person was a true convert or not. And it's quite possible that the absence of a clear teaching could be due to the fact that Paul and Peter understood and accepted the Old Testament pattern of giving the covenant to as a sign to both believing adult 
and the children of believing adults. So let's go back to the original premise of this discussion. And that is that God clearly included the unbelieving and even unborn children of believing parents in the Old Testament covenants and commanded them to walk into this covenant sign. God did this with Noah, Abraham, Jacob, David, and of course with the, the God's covenant with the people of Israel mediated through Moses. And the New Testament evidence points to the fact that this pattern has not changed in the New Covenant. Peter's Pentecost sermon plainly demonstrates that he regarded the children of believing parents as being included in the New Covenant. Acts 2.39 For the promise, in other words, the New Covenant promise of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, is for you and for your children. Isn't that interesting? So then, if the promise is offered to these children, why should the sign be withheld? So the question that remains then is what value, what does this signify for the child? And the answer to that, one look, needs to look no further than the person of Abraham. And Paul says this beautifully in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. That circumcision was a seal of Abraham's faith. Now, for Abraham, it was a sign of his experience of his faith. But this could not be said of his descendants, who were all supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day of their life, right? For them, circumcision signified not an experience of faith, but rather a call to faith. Inclusion in the covenant and receiving circumcision didn't signify that they were saved. It called them to be saved. And so circumcision was a call to live up to the terms of the covenant of Abraham and thus inherit its promises. That's why Jeremiah used the image of circumcision to call Israel to re true repentance and faith. Jeremiah 4.4 Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. In the same way, the baptism of a believer's child represents a call. That that child to place their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for themselves. And to confirm this publicly, we do this at Christ Church when they enter high school, about 14 years old. We found when you do it earlier, the chances of them really understanding much is not great. So that's why we say, okay, when you're in high school, young people, put your big girl pants on, put your big boy pants on, and man up and get in front of this congregation who loves you, and profess your faith. That's why it's so important for Christian parents to remind their children that the sign that they have received symbolizes the promise of the gospel to them. And so, if when they come to baptism as children, and they come to their own faith in Christ, it is a powerful thing to stand before a bishop and profess the faith. And allow the Holy Spirit to just move in their lives for their own. It's a beautiful thing. And until that time, they're part of the covenant family. And they have all the benefits of belonging to this covenant family, which has the choice of privilege in God's family. So we as Anglican Christians conclude that the children of believers are welcome to the waters of baptism and are included in the new covenant sign and are therefore appropriate recipients 
of the sign of the covenant. And now that you know that, please do not run down the hall and get in an argument with Calvary Baptist people. We, we, we went through a discussion of this. And if you are from a Baptist tradition, you get it. And I love my Baptist friends because we disagree on this. But me and Pastor Dave just come to an agreement. Okay, we don't see eye to eye on this, but we love one another. And we encourage one another. And he, they get why we do what we do. Which is very unique for a Baptist church, by the way. Okay? Very unique. Many of them, th- th- that's an issue which can't be compromised. Okay? And so, this is just an in-house discussion today. All right? And it's important that we recognize that. And on a final note should be made about the proper mode of baptism. You know? Uh, some people say you should be fully immersed. Some people say, you know, you, you need just sprinkling or whatever. The mode is not what's stressed in the scripture. It's just like uh, the Lord's Supper. We use the stuff that Jesus uses. We use bread. We use wine, or grape juice. Uh, you know, we don't use potato chips and Pepsi. All right. There's something anointed about the elements that God chose And there's something anointed about the water. And the mode of baptism, whether it be by immersion, which Anglicans do, by the way. And people have have looked at me kind of strange. What? Well, yeah. My home church, Truro in Virginia, has an immersion pool under the Lord's table. They literally, it's a wooden table. They move it. And on Easter Sunday at the 11 o'clock service, there's a long line of new believers and families and children. Service takes forever, you know. But it's awesome, you know, because some of the babies, you know, are handed to the minister and he just, you know, it, you know, sprinkles them, whatever the parents want. But I'll never forget, I was a young man. They took a little baby boy, they stripped him down to nothing, and they dunked him because that's what the parents wanted, you know. And it was, it was just a slight dunking. They weren't drowning the baby, you know. <laughs> but it was beautiful, and the whole congregation just clapped, and the baby just came up out of the water like this, you know. <laughs> It was beautiful symbolism. This is a covenant child of God. That's who we are. Covenant parents, covenant children, and then the mode is not that important. What is important is the, that water is used to cleanse the sin symbolically, buried in Christ, raised in Christ in baptism. Well, why was Jesus baptized then? That's interesting. That begs the question. Well, here, Matthew emphasizes the sinlessness of Jesus. You see it in verse 11. Because John was surprised to see Jesus coming to him for baptism. Because as John had just said, he was baptizing a baptism of repentance. He didn't need to repent. But Jesus answered him in verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. The words, let it be so now, in verse 15, show that Jesus knew that John was correct. Jesus was sinless. He had no need to be cleansed of sin. But Jesus also knew that he needed to be baptized for another important reason. And it's obliquely stated in the phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. 
by which Jesus indicated he needed to show others of his willingness to submit to this, this sign of identification with God's kingdom. Jesus' baptism inaugurates also his ministry from this time on in Matthew and in all the Gospels. He's baptized, off to the races from that point on. And so in so doing, Jesus also endorses John's ministry and his message and leaks Jesus' own message, mission to John. And although Jesus needed no repentance or cleansing, Jesus identifies with his sinful people that he came to save through his substitutionary life and death. So baptism is all these things wrapped up, dear friends. It's confession, it's repentance, it's trusting in Jesus alone and his work upon the cross and our willingness to not compartmentalize. And for us parents, it's pointing our children, it's pointing our teenagers to walk to the covenant. So if your kids get up in the morning and they're arguing with them, you say, be quiet, I made a promise to God. Get over it. It works. You know, talk to Zach. You know, he always said, you couldn't complain. He made a promise to God. You know, all the time. Well, we did. And so did you. And we do it as parents. We do it as godparents. And so what does this mean for us? I think the first point is, have you been baptized? And not just the, the, the mechanics of baptism. Have you not compartmentalized part of your life and kept it from the waters of baptism? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ? Are you keeping any part of your life out of the water? When, when I interview new members, when I interview our kids that are preparing, our, our teenagers that are preparing for confirmation, and I encourage parents, don't, don't push your kids to confirmation. It's, it's a huge step, huge, to say, I'm an adult, I'm my own, I'm going to own these promises for myself. It's a gigantic step. I encourage, you know, if they're not ready, don't force them. But it does give us the right to ask them, and you're receiving communion, why? When they get to be 14, 15, they should be ready, right? About that time. So it gives us ministry with our young people that many traditions don't have. And, but when we bring them in for an interview, it's to talk to them. It's not a, it's not a you know, a, a, a legal subpoena, <laughs> you know. You know, we're not interrogating them, in other words, but if they're not prepared, it may feel that way. Because I'm going to ask them questions such as, you know, and it's also hard to pin kids down these days, by the way. You know, kids, you know, hey, come on in for, a, you know, just a visit with me before you, you come, the bishop comes, so I can make sure, because i got a responsibility, friends, before the bishop, and above all, before God, that the people who are stepping forward truly are believers, right? That's my job. Well, you know, I can't make it, Gene. I got horseback riding lessons. Or I can't make it, Gene, because of this or that. Well, friends, you're not going to be a professional horseback rider, probably. 
you're not going to be a professional soccer player or football player or basketball player or golfer. You know, I, I've, I've coached, all my kids were athletes, and I had one artist. And Becca's making a go of it, God bless her. But she didn't miss the covenant family because of that. Okay? And I want to encourage you guys. It's all fond memory 40 years from now. But what's done for the Lord is for eternity. And so, and I've seen many of our kids play. They're not going pro, you know? Uh-uh, it didn't happen. Robert Jackson's the only pro we have, all right? And he went to a full ride to Duke, played 11 years for the Cleveland Browns, and he's here most every Sunday. I'm telling you, the Lord's doing a work in all of our lives. And I can say that for many of you, you know? It's going to cost you. But when we have them in for an interview visit, you know, I ask them basic membership questions. Uh, What's the good news of the gospel? 60 seconds or less. What do you think? Do you believe that? Oh, great. Well, are you certain if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Uh, If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And then once we work all that out and they're on the right page, and they've placed all their trust on Jesus and not on their own works, then I ask them just basic discipleship questions. What, what small group are you part of? What, what group are you walking through life with, doing life with? What ministry here do you see yourself being involved in if you're not currently being involved in? You see, that has nothing to do with candles, robes, any religious things, although they're all deeply symbolic and important. But what's most important is that we're not compartmentalizing. We have a real personal relationship with the living God. So in a few minutes, if you turn to page 7 in your bulletin, being the Feast of the Epiphany where we baptize children, or anybody else who wants to baptize, but we didn't have any candidates for Epiphany, well... We renew our covenant whether we have a child or not. And this is a pattern of discipleship that we are called to live in, which is straight from the scripture, by the way, because the prayer book bleeds scripture. So here are the promises that we make when new adults join the church, as well as when we baptize children, the parents promise to raise their kids in this covenant. Young people, when you're confirmed, these are the promises you make for yourselves. Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers? That's straight from Acts 2.42, meaning I will be a Bible person. Apostles' teaching, that's what that is. I'm going to be a Bible reader, a Bible studier, and I do it with others. No, teaching and fellowship, that means with other people. I don't do it in isolation. So if you don't have a group, Come join us tonight, 6 o'clock, my house. We're going to talk about gospel-shaped worship. We'd love to have you. But if not our group, there's other groups. Teaching and fellowship. In the breaking of bread, that means Sunday worship. And I know some people work on Sundays. I want you to hear me. I get it. I get it. But kick, scratch, and crawl to get here to be with one another. Because that's who we are. And in the prayers, that we're praying people individually and corporately together. Straight from Acts 2.42. And with all these promises, we recognize in our own strength we can't do it, and we ask the Holy Spirit's help. With the help of God, I will. 
Will you persevere in resisting evil? And whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. That's the theme from 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's pretty powerful because we recognize, you know what? It's not about getting my act together when I come to church. It's not about getting my act together when I come to the Lord's table. It's about him having his act together for us, and I place my trust in him, and therefore I run to him when I fail. Third promise. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? We have always been an evangelistic people. Uh, we're still working on that, aren't we? That's okay. That's all right. We're doing better than we ever have been. And that's straight from the Great Commission where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. We make disciples. That's what we do. And so we'll proclaim by word in our lives. Fourth, will you seek and serve Christ and all people, loving your neighbor as yourself? That's reaching out to everybody. The weak, the harassed, the helpless, Jesus talking about that in Matthew 9, 35 and 36. And finally, will you acknowledge Christ's authority over human society by prayer for the world and its leaders, by defending the weak, and by seeking peace and justice? Hearkening back to Micah 6, 8, that we would be a people who love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's the beginning of our partnership with CRS. Continuing and looking about how we can reach back into the city as well. Because, you know, if we all look the same, friends, there's something wrong with the church. It's amazing to see that Jesus comes, dear friends, in closing with, with such humility. He doesn't have a posse at this point, does he? He, doesn't have, he hasn't chosen his disciples yet. So he just comes and John recognizes him. He comes with no pomp and no fanfare. And John says, I'm not worthy to carry this guy's sandals. You know, sandals and carrying other people's sandals and washing other people's feet was the lowest form of servanthood in the ancient household. And John says, I'm not even worthy for that job description to you, Jesus. But yet Jesus submits to John's ministry. Humble king to fulfill all righteousness and to submit himself to John's baptism because Jesus himself is righteous. And notice what the Father says in the hearing of everybody gathered there. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. My friends, the reality is, and the scripture all says this, in Galatians 3 in particular, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. So when he looks at you in Christ, not compartmentalized, but everything I give to you, O Lord, he looks at you and says, oh, you are my daughter, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased. That's the gospel. That's baptism. We don't come saying, uh, Lord, I, I can't stand in my own righteousness. I can't stand and say, look how good I've been how much money I've given, how much prayer I've had, how much Bible I've read, how I've given to the poor, how nice a person I am. Oh, 
Those things are good, by the way. Don't stop doing those things. But our motivation for doing those things is not worthy of our entrance into the kingdom. The only thing that's worth us entering into the kingdom is His righteousness. His work upon the cross and His righteousness clothed upon us because we trust in that atoning work. And so therefore, my friends, let us turn to Christ with genuine faith this epiphany season. So I'm going to close in prayer with John Wesley's great prayer. He used to pray this on occasions, but he would definitely pray in the church with his people. And he did this so that people would have opportunity to once again recommit their lives to Christ and to recommit to walking into the covenant that we promise. Do we really mean it? In other words. So I'm going to pray this prayer and I'm going to pause after, after every clause. And I encourage you in the quietness of your hearts to just pray along with me. And at the end of the prayer, just pronounce a hearty amen. And I'll know you're with us on this. Okay? And then we're going to renew our covenant together. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we profess, Lord, I profess that I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put work for you, to be put to work for you, or to be set aside for you. Praised for you, or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. You are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.